we just finished reading through as a church all the uh, Old Testament laws, Deuteronomy, um, Exodus. We got some laws in there too. And I've been getting a lot of questions about, but what do these laws mean for us today? Like, how do we apply these laws today? Which are still applicable, which aren't? How do we navigate those things? Um, to summarize, you know, there's two tablets. There's different categories. There's the moral law, and then there's the ceremonial law. And a lot of people have issues as to where the line is between those two things. And so we're going to talk about that starting in our next Sunday school class, which will either start next Sunday or the Sunday following. So just heads up, um, new Sunday school class is coming. And we're going to talk about the application of the Old Testament, Old Covenant law to be able to start working through those things. So don't miss that. I think it's going to be very helpful for a lot of the questions. I think um, some folks were asking, oh, what was the one that we got this week? There was one that came up. Oh, man, I can't remember now. But there is a lot of helpful things, I think, that we'll be able to get into over time. What's up, Jesse? That was just in our office. We were having that conversation about what, how do we deal with the whole blood in the meat. Don't eat meat with blood still in it. Don't do that. And a steak that's cooked rare that has red stuff coming out of it, that's not blood. That's a protein. Um, so different, different stuff. So some folks, some folks think that it's blood and they're like, oh, no, I can only eat well-done steak. That's not blood. That's a different, some kind of different type of protein. Say what? That's from the curse. Yeah, so, <laughs> so that's not the case. Don't worry about that. But you shouldn't eat um, blood still in animals. That is still a, applicable. Yeah, blood sausage, don't do that. Um, and we can talk more about that later. Um, organ meat is clean, though, and we can discuss it. We'll, we'll get into all of this. You know, some people like kidneys and liver and tongue and other things. You know, we, we can get into all those discussions soon enough. Um, don't boil a baby in its mother's milk. There's some guys who have got some strange applications of that statement. We'll get into that one too. That's a fun one. Uh, we'll talk through that as well. So um, anyway, happy Lord's Day. I do have one other request to make. Okay, we are growing in just about every definition of that word. Okay, everybody's having babies. Amen. Uh, we got new visitors showing up to church like every week. Amen. So we need to, I know we kind of developed this culture for a little while there when all our kids were itty bitty of just letting them run around and have a heyday and a great time. But now some of our kids could literally knock people over. <laughs> they are getting to that size. Do you know what I mean? So do me a favor when church starts the the Grand Prix that operates right here, you know, just just try and keep that keep that contained. Because there was a couple of moments last week where I was like, that old man is about to get knocked over by that four-year-old. It's about to happen. So heads up, the Grand Prix, let's close the Grand Prix down and allow everybody to not, you know, be afraid of being killed or something like that. We're, we are a diverse in age and just about every other way church and so we don't want to create a scenario where somebody whose feet are not so solid underneath them gets nervous because the kids are Grand Prixing. Do y'all get what I'm saying? Yeah. So one day we'll have a church that will have a courtyard and an outside, and the children can lose their minds, and it will be wonderful. We're just not there yet. So one of these days that'll be a true thing. Man, imagine having a playground. Okay. Uh, today we're going to kind of continue working through the, uh, I call it, when and how to fight series that we've been working through in our stuff. Could y'all not play with the lights right now? It's distracting everybody. 
<laughs> it's just right. <laughs> I keep seeing people look up at the lights. Don't mess with the lights right now. Anyway, uh, good times, good times. We're all learning things together. Um, so if you didn't know, our Wednesday night Bible study has relocated to the Memorial Methodist Church here in town. I would encourage all of you guys to come and participate in that. We do about 30 minutes worth of singing, and then we do about 30 minutes worth of Bible study. It's a lot of fun, um, and we're, lean, we're learning a lot of more traditional set songs and hymns and psalms and stuff, and so people are enjoying that. And a more, Some of them are more modern settings of older texts, so it's very cool. I would encourage you all to come participate in that. In fact, today during worship, we're going to be singing one of those songs that we learned on Wednesday night, uh, kind of getting everybody going. You'll see whenever that shows up. And then um, we're also going to be continuing that uh, over time, and I would love to eventually get to the point where we might have a dinner on a Wednesday evening every couple of months or something on the site. I don't know. It would probably start with Little Caesars or something easy, so nobody has to do a bunch of cleanup afterwards. But it would be a fun thing for us to start incorporating into our, into our normal church life. All right. <clears throat> Today, let's go through a quick review over what we've chatted about as far as when and how to fight. So... Um, is, there a, is there a biblical example of, of conflict, of fighting in the Bible? Do we see that anywhere? Anything of any biblical characters that did that? <laughs> yeah, they did it the wrong way. <laughs> they were like, we're about to go pick a fight with this demon. And that demon was like, oh, really? And then they all ran away naked. All right, that's in the Bible. Okay, what else? Can you think of anything else? Any other examples of conflict in the Scriptures? Who was somebody in the Bible that was a good guy that fought? David, King David, that's right. He was a man after God's own heart. He was also a man of war. Who else? Samson. Uh, Samson, you know, he had his problems, but he was still fighting to do what the Lord was calling him to do. Who else? Jesus, literally Jesus. Um, There's lots of Lots of illustrations of him entering into verbal conflict with people, uh, but there's also physical conflict that he entered into people with, too, uh, in the classic example of the uh, temple, uh, him cleansing the temple. He's flipping tables. He's beating people with whips. Somebody said something to me not too long ago about, don't, why doesn't anybody teach Jesus's nonviolent standards? And I'm like, the same Jesus that like beat people with whips and threw furniture? Like say, that same Jesus, nonviolence? There's categories for violence. There's categories for conflict. All those things are biblical. What we're trying to do right now is figure out the, the nuances of when and where. And I think today is going to be helpful for that. Anything else that y'all can think of from our last couple of weeks that's been helpful for you? Yes, Eva Rose. The man with the long hair, Samson. Yeah, that's right. Very good. We're talking about Samson. That's good. So we got examples of conflict in the Scriptures. Um, is it a sin to enter into conflict with someone else? Is it? No, not necessarily. Can it be sometimes? Yeah. And we're going to talk about that today. Today we're going to be defining the strife stirrer and seeing who that is and what it looks like and what categories it applies to. But let me tell you something. God gave us His law, right? And that means that we have to repent and follow Him which, in a sense, is a life of conflict, right? There is a command that you're not doing. Someone needs to tell you that you're not following that command, and now you have to follow it. That right there, by itself, demands conflict in life. So for Christians to only ever avoid conflict, only ever be peace lovers, only ever want the peace to exist in their life, that's actually the sinful part. 
Because if that was your disposition, then that means you would never, ever, ever follow the Great Commission, and that's a problem. Do y'all have any questions about that before we get going today? Any questions about anything that we've covered over the last several days? Or have you seen opportunities for good godly conflict in your life over the last couple of weeks since we started this series? Anybody got any stories about that they'd like to share? Encouragement for us and others? Awesome. So I might as well just go home right now then. There's no, no. Amen. And I hope they repented. That's got to be in the Old Testament dietary laws somewhere. It's got to be. All right, so today we're talking about the strife stirrer. Um, we're going to be in a lot of verses today, so, and I'm going to ask for y'all's help in reading several of them, but if y'all just want to stick your thumb in the book of Proverbs, just grab Proverbs, because we're going to be flipping around there a lot, and whenever it comes time for me to be pulling some Proverbs from you, I'm going to be requesting those things. So what, what is strife? What does strife mean, you guys? What's that, Jesse? Conflict in general? In general? Okay, maybe conflict in general. What else? Be, being an argumentative person in your disposition? Okay, maybe. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, what else? What is strife? Say it again. Hardship? There's a difficulty? Yeah, something, something hard. When I say strife here, we're talking about uh, between two people. We use this word a lot in our house right now because I have children, and anyone in this room that has children should also have that. Can you think of anything else? What would be another way to understand strife? Mm. I hate the Oxford. Is that the 2020 Oxford? Oh, yeah, then that's definitely the new Oxford. That thing's so woke. He, so read that again, buddy. Anger or bitter disagreements. There's a lot of color attached to that terminology. That's a lot of emotional color. So this is why I don't like the new Oxford. If you go back and you read like the, the 1800 Oxford, it's actually much more helpful for what the words really mean. But let me summarize strife in this sense. Strife, if I could just give it a one-word definition, is any kind of disagreement. You got it? That's, that's what strife is. So strife in and of itself is not necessarily bad all the time. Okay, but to be a strife stirrer is the problem, and to enter into unbiblical strife is also a problem. But strife itself, disagreement itself, is not completely sinful, and we're going to get into that here in just a little bit. But to be the one who's perpetually stirring it up, to be the one who's egging it on all the time, there's a problem. The strife stirrer is somebody who's perpetually operating in disagreement with everybody. That would be People outside of the church, people inside of the church, people outside their family, and people inside their family. A strife stirrer is easily recognizable. The, our disposition within the context of the local church and within the context of our families should be one towards unity. Everybody say that with me. Unity. That's what we're looking for here. The, the, the context of the local church, the context of our family should be people who are working towards unity. The folks, the folks who instead are strife stirrers are not working towards unity within the context of their family or within the context of their local church. They're instead working towards disunity. And there's a lot of different ways that we can talk through that. In other words, there are people that are prone to, be, to, to pick a fight, okay, and to pick a fight unnecessarily. Now, 
Notice I'm using some words really carefully here. When I say working towards unity, it does not mean that there's never a disagreement, okay? But it does mean that you recognize the disagreements that need to happen and the ones that don't need to happen. And you also recognize that there's a right place and a wrong place, a right time and a wrong time to have these disagreements. For example, in our house, let me give you a family example. We tell our older kids, so we got little kids and we got older kids. Whenever our kids hit around uh, nine or 10 years old, we tell them, hey guys, listen, if you have a problem with something that mom and dad have said to you, then you need to take some time away from the rest of the kids and present a case. Come make a case to us. There's a right way for them to enter into disagreement. And there's been plenty of times with my kids where I'm like, oh, I think you might be right. Okay, let's think about this differently. Or maybe, maybe you didn't understand what I said the first time. Let's deal with this. So it's not to say that you never, ever, ever enter into conflict, okay? There is a right way and a wrong way to do it within the body of the church, within the context of the family, and it's a good thing for us to happen. There should be little, little micro-debates that happens in your family and happens in your church. I really enjoy hanging out with the men in our church because there's plenty of times whenever we don't agree on different things. And I, men, operate with a disposition of, I'm going to punch you in the nose and then buy you a beer after, and we're going to go hang out. Like, that's kind of a, a normal man lifestyle. And I think we have that culture kind of built into our congregation really healthily at this point. We want to keep that, want to keep that thing going. But there's a right way to enter into conflict, and there's a wrong way to do it. But the strife stirrers are ones that I'm watching out for. Romans chapter 16, verse 17, I'm going to read it. You can uh, write down that reference, though. Romans chapter 16, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers... To watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. You should avoid them. Now remember, disagreements happen within the church and the family, but those things should be the exception and they should be done in the right way. They shouldn't be the standard operating procedure. Now, uh, maybe you married somebody because your, your emotions took control of you and you, you were just like, I love everything about this person and by everything I mean the way that they look and that they like me and I will marry this person. And you didn't actually thoroughly vet them in any of the other categories first. Um, it, we, that's a, you, you awoke the eros love, as the Bible talks about. You awoke the romantic love too early and then there's no take backs. And now you're married. And that means you got to dance with the one that brought you. You know, <laughs> like you're married to that person now. You got to figure this thing out. And so, in those situations, you might have a higher degree of disagreements. You might have a higher degree of strife inside of the household. And that's understandable and fine. But the general operating sense of a family and of a church is one that is in unity or working towards unity. Are y'all following with me here? So we don't have conflict within the church for the sake of conflict. We have conflicts for the sake of working towards unity. We don't have conflict in our family for the sake of fighting. We don't want to just argue. We don't want to be the, well, actually, people. Like, that's not who we want to be. We want to be working towards unity, unification with one another. That's the disposition of the local body. The goal is always unity. And there's a difference between somebody who's just arguing for arguing's sake, that's a strife stirrer, that's a conflict, that's a person who wants conflict, or somebody who is actually working towards unification. Does that make sense? Conflict has a purpose. Move in its purpose. 
Don't try to just do your own thing. Don't just start fights unnecessarily. Y'all got questions about that? Have you ever seen anybody do this well? Have you ever seen anybody enter into conflict well? And they, remember defining well as in somebody who's moving towards unity. Okay? You ever, you ever been around somebody who doesn't at all? And they're just a stripester? They enter into conflict because they like to fight? Right? Y'all see these categories, right? You see these categories in your life. And you want to make sure that you're moving to that correctly. Now, what context am I talking about right here, though? Inside the church and inside the family, right? Inside of local covenantal bodies is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about our relationship to the world, okay? Because there's only going to be conflict there. I need y'all to hear me when I say this. There is only going to be conflict between the church and the world around us until they repent and believe. Only conflict. And I'm going to make that case thoroughly by the end of it. The problem that we've gotten into as the Christian church is we've decided that all the peace-seeking verses mean that that's our disposition to the world around us. And I'm going to prove to you today that it's not. I've got two of them lined up, and I'm going to knock them out of the park for you, and you're going to see. Our place, our disposition to the world around us is perpetually going to be one of conflict. Why? Say that again. Because the world that is around us, we're not like them, right? We're completely different. We have a different moral standard. And in fact, the Bible teaches us that we should be bringing that moral standard into the world around us, which demands what? Conflict. You have to have it, you see? So when we're saying we want unity, we're talking about within the family. We're working towards unity in the family. We're working towards unity in the local church. Those are covenantal local bodies, okay? We are not saying we're working towards unity with the world around us. That's pluralistic secularism. That's evil. We don't want that. We don't, um, what's the word? What's that C word? Say it again. We don't compromise. Thank you so much. My brain just went, and I could not remember what it was. We don't compromise with the world around us. That's evil. The Bible is the standard. It holds fast as the standard. We say yes and amen to it. Therefore, that requires conflict with the world around us, period, full stop. Now, let's talk about the strife stirs, though. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be Quarreling. One of the first characteristics of those who are the strife stirs inside of the context of the family or inside of the context is of the local church is that they are fools. It's just plain foolish. They fight for fighting's sake. They want to disagree for disagreeing's sake. They are the well actually guy. Y'all know anybody like that? You ever met a well actually? Well actually. No, stop. Okay. You, know, you need to be working towards unity. Well actually, I don't. Stop it. <laughs> stop it. The Bible commands within the local body, within the local church, and within the local family, we're working towards unity. If you are just looking to stir up strife, if you're looking to stir up disagreement every opportunity you get to, then you are a strife stirrer. Then you got to repent. Now, do you ever disagree with people in your family? <laughs> Why do you think that is? Because you live with them, right? That's, that's how it works. When you have a family... Uh, that we are, uh, our kids, they go to the same school, they ride in the same carpool, they go back home to the same house, they, some of them sleep in the same rooms, 
shocker, there's strife there, (laughs) right? And there's strife within your family. Why? Well, because you live with those people, and they see the good side of you and the bad side of you. They see all of it, okay? Now, that's not to excuse the bad side of you, but it is to say that it makes sense that in those contexts, you're going to have a lot of disagreement. This is part of why pastors are qualified or disqualified to be a pastor based on the condition and health of their families, because they've worked for unity within their family to the point where it's palpable, where it's, it's visible, it's measurable. People can see it. Look at that healthy family. They don't yell at each other. <laughs> well, they do. They just deal with it quickly, right? They don't argue. Not true. They do. They just deal with it quickly. You see, like, there's disagreements, there's issues that comes up inside of the local family. But the point is that those pastors are qualified because their family is operating in a healthy way, and therefore the logical conclusion is that they can lead the church to do the same. Following with me here? Local covenantal units should operate and work towards unity in all of life. So one of the roots of strife stirring is just plain foolishness. You want to be right all the time. You ever met anybody like that? No. We don't have anybody like this in in this church, do we? No. We are only ever humble people seeking after the Lord's will in all of life, and we never desire to win the argument and be right all the time, do we? We do. We, we most definitely do. We, we like to fight. We like to argue. We like to be all right all the time. Guess what? We all got sin. Repent. Follow the Lord Jesus. Run after him. Trust and obey him. Amen? Amen. Okay, great. Uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Now, you could have a lot of disagreements some, with somebody because you just hate their guts, Right? You have this uh, jealousy for them. You have this disposition of, of outbursts of anger, of, of, of uh, strife with them, because every time you get around them, you say, I do not like this person. That's sinful. You need to repent of that. These are your covenant people. It's either inside of your family or it's inside of the context of the local church. You need to fight to follow them. Amen? That's, that's it. Like, hatred stirs up strife. If that's you, if you're, if you're cultivating hatred and murder for somebody else in your heart, if you want them to lose, if you want to be in conflict with someone because you want to beat them all the time, it's not going to end well with you. In fact, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 6. Somebody read that for me. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 6. Who's got that? Ooh, say that louder, Kelly. I love that verse. Put that verse on a coffee cup. I would buy that coffee cup. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. That's a strife stir, right? That's a strife stir. You, you ever heard the expression, keep running your mouth? That's a proverb, <laughs> you know? That's a proverb. Keep running your mouth and see what happens to you. Yes, and Amen. And if that's us and our disposition with other people, if, if our foolish lips are walking us into the fight, it's, it's not going to end well with us. You're inviting a beating, and it's going to be sad. James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16 says this. Listen close. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. You see, this is the strife stir right here. You see in that? It's the person who's saying, I want to be in charge. I want to be the one out in front. I want to be the one on top here. He says, if you've got bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, then don't boast 
and be boastful and false with the truth. Don't do that. There is not, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Jealousy, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Part of the disposition of a strife stir could be hatred of the other person. It could be jealousy of the other person. Everything okay? Are we good up there? Oh, okay. I couldn't tell. I saw y'all, and I'm trying to figure out if y'all are still problem solving or not. It could be jealousy is causing a problem. It could be angst is causing a problem. If you want to beat them, so you're looking to enter into conflict with them, that's sinful. That's being the strife stir, and you, and you want to run away from that. Especially if you're trying to tear somebody around while you have an audience, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? You start a fight, you pick a fight because you got people watching. Like, I'm about to beat this person because I want to either win these people to my side or I want to humiliate them in front of them, okay? That's not the Christian way to enter into conflict. What does the Bible say whenever we should enter into conflict? Matthew 18 says what? Very clearly, that we do what? We go first to the person when nobody else is present. Now, it is true that sometimes somebody sinned very publicly, and the only option is to deal with it very publicly. That's true, but you need a lot of wisdom before you walk into that. And your general disposition of dealing with sin is not one of only public matters. But if you're trying to get out in front of people, if you're trying to deal with, if you want the presence of an audience because you're trying to tear somebody down publicly so you can win, then you're in trouble. I think men and women do this, but I think men do it more when they're peacocking. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Like men will, men will peacock. Do y'all know what peacocking means? No, everybody's sitting around looking at me like, we don't know where you are. Do what? You know what peacocking means, right? Like the, like the peacock picks up all its feathers. It's like, I am impressive. And the women peacocks are like, I am impressed. Like that's their relationship dynamic with each other. So men do that whenever there's other people around watching, seeing what's happening. And they're like, I'm about to, I'm about to humiliate all these boys and be the alpha in the room. Here we go. I've seen men do that too. That's bad, guys. Don't do that. Don't, don't, don't be peacocking around like that. Don't be the one that's trying to be champion and the one in charge and all those kinds of things. Men do that whenever they're peacocking. Women do that. Women are more sly about it, okay? Men are like, you're an idiot, okay? That's the general vibe of a man. But women will do the backhanded compliments, I think. That's a thing that kind of happens with those things. Y'all ever watch Everybody Loves Raymond? I love that show. I really do. The, the mother... The Marie mom in it, she's like, oh, Deborah, you're cooking again? I'll go home and bring some food just in case. You know, like, it's stuff like that. Now, obviously, that's an exaggeration, but they're basing that off of some presupposition of your stereotypical way that women argue with each other. I think that's a fair and accurate assessment in most situations. They do it differently. Women and men fight differently, but we're all still doing the same thing. Now, in some sense... It isn't wrong. We should be people who speak the truth in love and the truth, and we say it plainly to one another. But there is a difference between entering into conflict to impress somebody and doing it to be true. Okay? There's a difference between entering into conflict with, to impress somebody and then fighting to be, to be true. That's a, that's a big difference, and we should be very clear on what's going on with that. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 19 says, Whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. We should not be the person that's just looking for the fight. 
We should be the person who's looking to be operating with a disposition of unity within our local covenants, and then beyond that, we'll talk more well. But if we love transgression, we love strife, we don't want to be the people who are just seeking destruction. Okay, do you have any questions about any of this? So what should our general disposition be within the context of our family? Unity. Or if we're not in unity, what, was she, what, 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 was she, what should we be doing? Striving for unity, which means that does require a degree of conflict. It does. It also sometimes means that the head of the house sets the tone and says, hey, this is who we are. This is what we do. Because sometimes conflict just doesn't look like it's ending. And so head of house has to show up and say, this is what we're doing inside of this house. This is the way that we live and operate. Boom. Or whoever the patriarch, matriarch might be, you know. If you're at grandma's house, grandma kind of gets to make the rules. This, as long as you're under my roof. You ever heard that expression before? Same general disposition. So you want to keep those things going. The Bible gives us very specific instructions, too, in dealing with other types of conflict. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. So that's inside of the local covenant body, okay? That's inside of the local covenant body. But go to Matthew 18, and let's talk about more than that. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Oh, no, I'm sorry. This is still, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 gives us specific instructions on how to deal with conflict inside of the body. If your brother sins against you, what do you do? You talk to them. Talk to the brother that sinned against you. You go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You're not looking to stir the big pot of fight. You're not looking to stir the big controversy. You're not looking to go fight that far. That's not your general disposition. You're trying to do that. If he, and then it goes through the rest of the steps over and over again. But our disposition with disagreement to those we are in covenant with is one is restoration and unity. Not to win, not to be right, not for selfish gain, not to be impressive. If that's you, if you're the, well, actually, guy, you need to stop. You need to repent. You need to follow the Lord and trust him with what he's doing. Amen? Okay. Questions about that? Because I'm about to switch gears. Now I'm about to switch gears. So inside of the church, local family, local church, we operate for a spirit of unity. That's what we're fighting for above all else. Now let's talk about outside of the church. Should we be always seeking peace with those outside of the church? I gave you the answer to this question earlier. Is it even possible? Is it possible to seek peace only with those outside of the church? How would we? How could we even pull that off? Amen. By converting them, by lining them up at gunpoint and making them get baptized. Right, buddy? Oh, wait, no, not that, not that. My bad, my bad, not that, not that, not that. That's what the Roman Catholics kept trying. That did not work. Did you guys know that? <laughs> Maybe not by gunpoint. Maybe it was sabers, you know, but that was, that was not a functional way for them to pull that kind of thing off. Uh, Christendom by force is not what we're talking about, but we do want revival and transformation. Outside of the church, the way for us to be seeking peace with those outside of the church is by conversion. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Go there. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Y'all follow along with me here. 1 Timothy 2. See, these are the famous verses that are about conflict, and everybody reads these wrong. Not everybody, but the vast majority of the church that says, we should just be peace seekers, peacemakers. Those are the ones who read it wrong, and we're going to get through this today. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Read along with me, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, why would Paul write that to Timothy? 
He's saying, pray for your leaders. Offer yourselves to them in service so that we could live a peaceful and quiet life. What does Paul mean by peaceful and quiet life in the context of 1 Timothy right here? What's going on in the life of the church? They're running for their lives. Yes, they're running for their lives. So what he's saying is, guys, try to fly under the radar in our current culture because they keep on killing us. So maybe if we want to have a little bit of peace We can just pray for them, offer ourselves in service to them, live our lives plainly as Christians, but just try to try to be chill about it. Try to try to not necessarily be be too on the radar for a lot of the church because they're going to keep on killing us. Yes, the church is running for its life. He's saying, pray that they will stop trying to kill us so that we can live peaceful lives. (laughs) His definition of peaceful lives is they're not trying to kill him anymore. Like, that's a peaceful life. Are y'all following with me? He's not saying, so that I can tend my windowsill garden and only ever have relaxing days. He's saying peaceful equals they're not trying to kill me. Literal peace, as in like not war types of peace. Are y'all following with me? He's not saying never do anything to stir the pot in public. He's not saying never proclaim God's truth. He's saying maybe if we just like try to urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings being made for all the people and for the kings who are in high positions, they'll stop trying to kill us. That'd be great. (laughs) Imagine if we had those problems right now. That'd be awesome. It wouldn't be awesome. So the church is running for its life. He's not saying peaceful in the sense that they have zero conflict. That's crazy. He doesn't mean that. But what about this one? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Y'all flip there real quick on your phones, on your phony phones. <laughs> Thomas. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, this is a verse that's often used as a kill shot against uh, Christians in this particular category. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 11 and 2. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. And to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You see that? Strive to live quiet lives. Live peaceful, quiet lives. Mind your own business. Don't deal with people out there. Work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before the outsiders and be dependent on no one. See, here's the problem. If you only start that reading in verse Amen. (laughs) The Lord loves us. Okay, here's the deal. Here's the deal. If you only read that verse from verse 11 on, it sounds like Paul is saying that we need to never enter into conflict with those outside of us. But that's not what it says. Pull back, start at verse 9. Same section, 1 Thessalonians 4, start at verse 9. Now concerning what? Brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love who? One another. You've been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to who? Where y'all at? Come on, man. What y'all doing? It's going to be all right. I know we're all excited about the projector, but you got to learn some stuff about Jesus today. It's going to be okay. For what? For what? For all the brothers. Okay, you see, so we got brotherly love. We got one another. We got all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, who? Brothers. To do this more and more and to aspire to live 
quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Do you see what he's talking about? He's saying, if you live in unity with one another, it will affect the way the world outside sees Jesus' church. He's not saying live in unity with the world around you. The context is absolutely painfully clear. He's saying live with unity, brothers, with one another, within the context of the local church. They shall know you by your what? They shall know you by your love. That's what the Bible says, one for another. Who's the they? Those outside the church. Who's the one another? Those inside the church. It's the same concept. If we operate in unity with one another, it will change the world out there sees us, and it will matter. If we are all visibly fighting to build the kingdom of God together and pulling in the same direction together, it will look appealing and beautiful to the world around us, even if they disagree with so much of what we do. It will change their disposition. It will be a, 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 an extra, an extra bib- biblical type of revelation for them to be able to see what Jesus' people are doing. And this is another one of the serious dangers of proof texting. If you just pull that one little verse out, bloop, and pop it over here, without the context, without the rest of the Bible around it, even this example has just the, I'm going to get you in a second, has just the immediate context around it that's completely clarifying. If we just pull out one verse and make that our whole theology, we just messed up big time. Okay, Dana, go ahead. Yeah. So, at the period of history that we're in right now in the world, I don't think it's possible for us to operate in that degree of unity with the global church because it's, there's so much going on. And I, I personally, I also don't think that we're built with, for it. And they definitely weren't built for it back at the origin of the early church in like two or 300. If you go read about the councils that they went down, they fought a lot at those councils, man. They were arguing and debating and all that different kind of stuff. Those councils were important and they did great things. But uh, that degree of unity outside of a local body, I don't think is possible. Now, the situation that we found ourselves in is the internet is a great gift, right? We can get so much more done, but it's also a little bit of our enemy because now we're importing controversy into our congregation that's happening in, I don't know, England, you know, and we're like, who cares? This isn't happening here, but we bring it back to ourselves um, because the internet is, is global. Now, I think, I think eventually there will be a much higher degree of unity in the global church. I think that's true. And as the church continues to grow and spread and teaching continues to raise, we will see a, a unification of the church at large. And I think that's already happening, but it's starting right now with pruning first. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think we're starting to see real clearly who the true church is and who it isn't, and we're pruning them off. And what I, one of the things that I love that I've noticed start happening, especially in the last two years, is there is a, there's a group of people across our country and in England and in some areas of Eastern Europe that are all like on the same page, theologically, missionally, um, how we operate, how we work, um, how we interpret the scriptures across all things, and we're all pulling in the same direction, by and large. That's very cool. 
but that started with a whole lot of pruning first, okay? And so I think we're in this phase right now where the thing that we need to focus on more than anything else is local. We would call that, where's David Riley? Is he working security? He is. Ted Gummett. Um, David and I have fun when we get to talk about this, but it's called biblical localism. It's the idea that um, we are here. This is where the largest degree of our influence is placed. Therefore, we should wield that influence where we are located. It's much easier to work for um, like-mindedness in local churches on a local level. Ecumenicalism. Um, ecumenicalism works whenever you've got your buddies in the backyard that you can go have coffee with from other churches, and y'all can start pulling in the same direction and have mission together. It's very difficult to do that on a nationwide scale, especially with anybody who calls themselves Christians, right? So I wouldn't worry too much at this point in history about trying to be unified with the global church. Yeah, no, I think we should work for that. But I don't think that, like, your local church trumps everything else, right? So that's, that's king. And the way that you collaborate with churches outside of your local church body is you have to have a mission that you agree on outside of it, right? So, um, I don't know, starting like a nonprofit, like the Pregnancy Center, okay? That was an opportunity for a lot of churches to get together and have an ecumenical work and pull together in the same direction. But if you're just trying to have unity for unity's sake outside of the local church, I find that that's next to impossible because you need a common direction, a common mission to pull on because you're not going to agree theologically on everything. It's just not going to happen. You know, it's, it's, it's a very difficult piece to pull, but you can have missions that you can pull in the same direction with. Like that's like the refinery. Johnny got all kinds of people pulling in the same direction at the refinery. Pregnancy center does that. Um, some schools do that. Like there's opportunity for that. Like Westminster, you know, there's, there's pieces that can kind of work that way. But I think that's the piece that you have to be able to pull off. And you also have to very carefully define dead coming. Not going to have enough time. You also have to very carefully, this is not your fault, it's mine. Um, you also have to very carefully define what are first tier and secondary and tertiary issues um, for ch local churches to be able to collaborate. Like, we can't collaborate with the Episcopal Church in town. They want to murder babies, and they don't have problems with the trans agenda movement, and they don't have problems with the alphabet soup, LGBTQ+, whatever thing that's going on in the world right now. Like, they're fine with all of that. We can't be on the same team. Um, we can be on the same team with, like, the First Baptist guys for most things, because I think we're pretty close. We can be on the same team with the um, Opelousas Bible Church guys, because we're pretty close. Um, I think we can be on the same team with the Hope Prez guys, because we're pretty close. Um, and I think that's about it. <laughs> you know, it's, we kind of, I think that's kind of it as far as, far as Christian biblical orthodoxy goes. So those things are worth it, but it's not saying let's have unity in all things, because that's not possible. But I would say let's find missions to pull together on and do that. I think that'd be a helpful thing. But that would be a conversation more for church leadership, I think, than anybody else. Does that make sense? Any other questions like that? That was fun. Thank you, Dana. All right, do I have time? Sorry, I'm doing it. Okay, so around us, the world around us, how do we, how do we treat dealing with unity with those outside of the church? Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, it says, make disciples of all nations, or other translations will say, teach all nations. Now, here's the deal. If you're going to make disciples of all nations, if you're going to teach all nations, which means all people, right, then what's that require of you? You have to go up to them and say, you're wrong, what you're doing is wrong, and the things that you believe are wrong, here's what's true. That's conflict, Right? For you to fulfill the Great Commission requires that you enter into conflict with the world around you. You don't get to decide, I'm just going to keep peace with all men. 
the very Great Commission itself requires that you rebuke them for their sin and tell them of the gospel and what they need to change in their beliefs and their lives in order to follow Jesus and be saved. That's a requirement, and that requires conflict. We have decided that those texts about unity apply to every single human being in the whole world, and then as a result, we've stopped preaching the gospel. We've stopped telling people that they need to repent of their sins and follow Christ. You all following with me here? The Great Commission requires conflict. But how do we do it rightly, Pastor Stewart? You know what? Let's just start off by doing it at all, okay? Then we'll figure out how to do it right. But let's just start by doing it. Do you hear what I'm saying? We, we've stopped preaching the gospel in our day-to-day life. We've stopped telling people to repent of their sins in our day-to-day life. We've stopped telling them to follow Christ and believe on Him and Him alone because He alone is the way to salvation in our day-to-day life. We've stopped, okay? What's the perfect way to do it? Man, forget that. Just do it. Just do it. Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim God's law. Invite people to repent. Invite people to follow Jesus and see what the Lord does. Scatter the seed as much as you possibly can because God's going to grow it. He says that he will. Throw it out there. Maybe the birds of the air are going to take it away. Maybe the rocky soil prevents some from growing. Maybe the thorns of this life, the cares of this life come up and choke some of the seed out. But some of it's going to grow. But you got to throw it. You see? You got to throw it. Okay? Proclaim God's law, invite people to repent, and invite them to follow Jesus. Throw the seed and see what the Lord does with it. Teach all nations. Teach them to follow all of Christ. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what Jesus says. Proclaim God's truth as much as you possibly can and see what the Lord does. This is why I'm going to say it. I got time. This is why, honestly, um, social media is a good platform for this. Truth-telling. Okay? That's a good platform for that. Because you've got a big audience on there, don't you? And if you've got a big audience present, what did Paul do whenever he was going to proclaim the gospel in new cities? What would he do? He would go where he could find a bunch of people. And then he would start a fight. <laughs> right? They, so much so that the Athenians were like, get this guy out of here before we kill him. And Paul was like, I gotta go, I'll see you later. And he recognized that he was about to die. That's, that's what our disposition should be. Proclaim the gospel. I was talking to a guy who does preaching on college campuses. Man, it was a lot of fun. And he said that the best piece of advice that he ever got was, if you want to draw a crowd, start a fight. And I think that, yeah, it makes sense. Now, I'm not telling all of you to go punch somebody in the nose, but listen to me. If there's a conflict, people come and watch. And as they come and watch, they anchor themselves and they want to participate in that conflict. And so my buddy, his name's Keith Darrell. He's coming to Tactics, by the way. He said that he'll go on campus, and for the first five, ten minutes, he's preaching the controversial issues of the day. He's talking about homosexuality. He's talking about individualism. He's going hard. And then once he recognizes that people are anchored and they're listening, then he starts dealing with their individual questions. And he's watched people convert and follow Jesus while he's doing that. This is what I'm saying. How do we do it perfectly? Stop. Just do it. Just do it and see what the Lord is going to do with it. Don't be scared of conflict. Wield conflict correctly and obey Jesus and enter into it, teaching others to follow him. But with Jesus' people, don't be a strife stirrer. Amen? Love y'all. See you in about 10 minutes.